I invite you to take your copy of God's Word with me. Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn together in Matthew chapter 13. We are returning again on this Sunday morning time together to Matthew's Gospel. And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 13 in the final few verses uh, that rounds out the chapter. If you remember, we were studying the parables together, going through the eight parables, the eight kingdom parables, at the beginning of Matthew chapter 13, that Jesus instructed his disciples. And now we come to the conclusion of Jesus' teaching of the parables. And we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to begin this morning in verse 53, and our focus will be verse 53 down through verse 58. So join me there in God's word. And the Word of God reads, Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, that he departed from there, and when he had come to his own country, his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue, so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is this... Is not his mother called Mary, and his brothers James, and Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? Verse 57, so they were offended at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own country, and in his own house. Verse 58, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Well, this is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our God lives and abides forever. The title of the message this morning is The Danger of Familiarity. The Danger of Being Familiar particularly the eternal danger of growing cold and familiar at best, and at worst, the danger of a heart of unbelief towards revealed truth in Christ. The danger of familiarity. We find this here in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 53. Friends, here this morning, spiritual decline is our enemy. Spiritual decline is the enemy of every Christian you can say, what are we talking about here? Spiritual decline. Well, there's a number of ways we can describe it. We could describe it like this. Growing apathetic, uh, growing cold, just growing familiar, uh, things becoming routine. Spiritual decline is the ever-present battle of the children of God. Keeping the coals hot. Maintaining the fire of a warm, vibrant, devotional life prayer life, time in God's Word, memorizing, meditating, being exposed to truth, and allowing that truth to transform us day by day. Friends, I would submit to us this morning that spiritual declension, lukewarmness, is the besetting sin of our church. Now, I know that sounds alarming, but friends, it's the, it's the besetting sin of my life. It's the besetting sin of your life. It is our constant battle. So lest you hear that this morning and think, LeGrand's trying to bring the house down, I'm not. But friends, this is our besetting sin. 
Lukewarmness is the besetting sin of the church. It's losing our first love. We, we love Christ because he first loved us. It's growing apathetic towards Christ, his church, and the advancement of his kingdom. And it is the deadly path of becoming uh, complacent before the Lord. In fact, we could summarize all of this in introduction with just one word, unbelief. Unbelief. Verse 58. It's the sin of unbelief, friends. And so we see that regression in this text. And if we look closely, if the Holy Spirit helps us this morning, we will see that regression in areas of our own life. And we ask the Lord, we invite the Holy Spirit of God and say, Lord, do the work that you do. Show us in our life where we are cold or apathetic or have a heart of unbelief towards your truth in this area. Now, this morning, I will be shifting back and forth, as you can understand, between the raw reality of the text, which is their apathy towards Christ, the Son of God, and then making application towards us in the life of the believer, in the life of church. But it is also a warning not only to the church, but friends here this morning who may not be found in Christ, you're lost, you're not a believer. It's a warning towards you of your unbelief against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to bring us up to speed quickly. The context of our passage, beginning here in verse 53, is that for the past year, Jesus has been using as a base of operations the small town of Capernaum. There were, there were three towns or three cities that were key in Jesus' life and ministry. Bethlehem, Nazareth, and Capernaum. Bethlehem, his birthplace. Nazareth, his hometown. And Capernaum, his what you could call his ministry base camp, his base of operations. And so Jesus is moving now from his base of operations. He is leaving Capernaum. And here we have at the end of Matthew chapter 13, this little interlude, it's a transition text to what is happening in the teaching ministry of Jesus. And our text tells us that he is returning back to Nazareth. And we're going to try to make a book in and see what the first time he was in Nazareth, and now we come to the second time that we see mentioned here that he is in Nazareth. He has been teaching his final aspect of his teaching ministry, the, the parables to his disciples. And of course, the parables were part of Jesus' judgment against unbelief as well. The, the audiences and the crowds were not responding in faith to the clear teaching of the Word of God. So Jesus, in a form of judgment, moves to parables. And if you remember, parables are designed to give an, a, a short story to reveal truth to believers, truth to disciples, but also to shield truth from, from the lost. Those who've hardened their heart in unbelief, it's a form of judgment that we see here in the passage. And so Jesus concludes that teaching ministry, the ministry of parables, and verse 54 tells us that he returns to Nazareth to do what? To teach and to preach in the synagogue. Now, I just want to take an aside here and just remind all of us at a church, there are many people that try to make the argument that Jesus is somehow divorced from the life of his church. It's a silly argument, but one of the things that leads them erroneously down this path is to just try to describe Jesus in a way that is anti-establishment. Does that make sense? As if Jesus only ever preached in the fields or in the boat on the water, and that he didn't like any form of structure or he was against the religious establishment of the day. Well, in one sense he was. He was, he was against error. He was against distortion. He was against falsehoods. He taught 
But he, the point is that he taught everywhere. And as his pattern was, when he would come into a town, much like his apostles and much like Paul, he would go to the place of worship. And for the Jews, it was the synagogue. And verse 54 tells us that as Jesus is coming back to Nazareth, he returns to the synagogue. This is an item of first priority for him. And he returns to teach the word of God. Now, the way that his hometown of, of Nazareth responds to him, what we find in this text is unbelief, rejection, spiritual blindness, and it serves as, as a rebuke for us even here this morning to ponder the path of our feet. Because here this morning, we find ourselves not in a Jewish synagogue, but here in the, the age of grace and the new covenant, we find ourselves in a local church gathered in a structure, in a building that's designed for worship. We are the physical body, manifestation of the local church here at Grace. And we've gathered here this morning to worship Him. And may the Lord find in us a heart that has ready soil to hear His word, His truth, and to say, yes, Lord. Or I repent, Lord, at the sin that you've shown me this morning. A strengthening in grace. Now turn back with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And Luke chapter 4, verse 16 is going to make our passage even more informative and clear. Because the last time that Jesus was in Nazareth, in fact, we could say both times that it's recorded for us that he's in Nazareth, the scenes are astounding. Astounding. Verse 53 of our passage, as you're turning to Luke 4, verse 53 says, It came to pass when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed, he went to the synagogue, and he taught them the word of God in their own synagogue. Now, lest that just be words off the inspired page, we need to go back to Luke 4 and understand the context here. Because the context is fascinating. And when you go back to Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, the Word of God reads this. So, so Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. I made note of that just a moment ago. This was his pattern. This was his way. Where is the Word of God? Where are the people gathered? Where is this truth proclaimed? And you would find Jesus there. And friends, may the Lord find his church there as well. May, may the kingdom of God be an item of first priority, an item of first preeminence in our life. Seek first, Matthew 6, the kingdom of God. And all these other things will be established unto you, added unto you. So as his pattern was here in our text, and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read and he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, now quoting Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue, remember this is his hometown, were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, the scripture, this scripture, is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marveled, notice here, at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. What was the teaching ministry of Jesus like? What, what, how awesome would it be? Uh, for us to not only read his, some of his sermons, as we find recorded in Scripture, but to hear it. What was it like? That's a huge word described for us there in the text. They marveled at the gracious words 
which proceeded out of his mouth. Just to pause here. Jesus loved the audience that he preached to. That's why he's there. That's why he's here. He has come to bring the good news to them. They marveled at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. It was to say, as if to say, they're not used to that. And they said to him, they said about him, is this not Joseph's son? Joseph, uh, the stepfather of Jesus, the earthly stepfather of Jesus, the carpenter. This is a question of derision. (laughs) Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, you surely will say this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have done in Capernaum, do all, whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land, but none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath on the region of Sidon to the woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. And so if you're tracking with me, Jesus is telling them that that God in his sovereign grace chose to heal a Gentile leper, bypassing many Jewish lepers in that day. And this is not to be received well. Notice their response. So all those in the synagogue of Nazareth, Jesus' hometown, this is his people. This is who he's lived life with. This is who he's played in the streets with. He's played with their children. He's grown up with them. He has built custom things for them as a son of a carpenter. He has labored among them. So then all of those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, they were filled with wrath, filled with indignation. And they rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the edge, the brow of a hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he, he went his way. Now we'll find our place back into Matthew chapter 13. Friends, what a text. Those who maybe had the most light of seeing and witnessing the incarnation and humility of Christ were ironically, friends, the most hardened. Those who had seen him grow from birth to 30 years of age, commencing his public ministry. Jesus was a carpenter. He was the son of a carpenter, and I'll touch more on that in just a moment. He he made his living working with Joseph, his stepfather. Listen to If you've ever worked with wood and stone, that's work. Uh, Lifting stone masonry and lifting logs. and Friends, it just kind of reminds us a little bit about who Jesus was in his humiliation. Not only does it kind of describe for us a little bit about his person, but it shows us his his courage, his fearlessness. If, If I was to preach in front of a congregation that tried to kill me, I probably wouldn't come back. I would be scared for my life, and you would be too. I'll never forget being on a missions trip to Haiti, and our church, there's a group of pastors that went down for just a week preaching every night for a special Bible conference, and we went out two by two. And me and a dear friend of mine, Brother Don Graham, who's now with the Lord, we were assigned a a church at the top of a mountain, essentially, a beautiful church. And we got up there, and as we were kind of standing outside getting out of the truck, 
Brother Don Graham pointed me over to a, like a mausoleum, uh, I don't know what else you would describe it, a big marble stone thing, and he said, you know what that is, don't you? And I said, I have no idea. And he said, that's the pastor. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, this church, many years ago, killed their pastor. And it died, as you can imagine. And a man of God, a young man of God, came along, and the Lord used him to rebirth, to revitalize, to replant that church. And uh, I'd never been a, at a church where the previous pastor was, had been murdered out in the parking lot. It was sobering. And I have to admit, this was very early on in my ministry. I was scared. I thought in my mind, if it could happen then, it can happen again. And I just said, Lord, help me. And you say, well, what's your point? Here's the point. Jesus is going straight back into the place where they tried to kill him. He's not afraid. He's not scared. He's full of the Spirit of God. He is the Son of God. He is God. As we come back to Matthew chapter 13, verse 53, that's the last thing we know of what we've looked at in our cross-reference Luke 4 of Jesus engaging with his hometown. And now as we spend the rest of our time here in this text for the next few moments, we're going to frame our thoughts around these, these headings. First of all, we see their astonishment in verse 53. Their astonishment. Secondly, we see their acquaintance in verse 55. Their acquaintance. Number three, we see their antagonism in verse 53, their response towards him. And then number four, we see the answer of Christ in verse 57. Then lastly, the abstaining of Christ in verse 58. So let's begin with number one. I want us to notice their astonishment. As Jesus comes again into their synagogue, and he brings the word of God, brings them faith, not only brings the word of God to them, but brings them face to face with the revealed truth of Scripture. And what was their response? Well, we see their astonishment, verse 53. It says, When he had come to his own country, he taught them in their synagogue when they had come to, when he had come to his own country. And they were astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom? And these mighty works referring to his miracles. They're astonished. They're, they're referring to his teaching ministry, but they're also referring to his healing ministry. And friends, what this reminds us of is that those where we find unbelief, unbelief is often found in the place where it has the most light. We, what we see here in this text is that where unbelief is expressed is often in an environment where there's no excuse for that unbelief. You know what I'm talking about. We, we all have people in our families who are unbelievers, or friends. I've got friends I went to high school with who are now atheists. I, I went to school, I went to seminary with guys who, who loved the Lord at one point in time, who were training to, for ministry, and now they've turned their back on Him. And here's my point. You will find unbelief, usually within a context, of those who, who are not a, a pagan in a foreign land with no access to the Word of God, the light of Scripture, what we find here is that oftentimes unbelief is manifested and expressed in an environment, in a realm where there should be no excuse for that unbelief. Our text here says they were astonished, they were amazed. Have you ever had the, the breath knocked out of you? You can't breathe, you're, you think you're about to die, you fall off your bike or you trip over something in the garden, and the way you land, you're dying, but you're not. The breath has just been, been knocked out of you. That's what this word means. It literally means to strike one's senses. It means to stun. They sat there listening to the teaching ministry of Jesus, who they have known. 
They've known him all of his life, and they are struck. They are astonished. They are stunned out of their senses, like someone has gut-punched them in the belly. Now, this is interesting because time does not allow us to unpack some of these this aspects of this, but what they're used to, the, the, the Jewish people in the times of Jesus found their teachers to be very boring, very, very boring. Monologue, almost reading a commentary uh, just verbatim. And so what they would do is they would take a talented young man who was handsome, who was, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, who was appealing to the eyes, in form, he had to meet certain criteria. Uh, they had all these, he had to be kind of the, kind of the envy of, of the, the people. Again, I'm just telling you what the commentators say. And someone who could be, who never stuttered, who never stumbled, who was like an orator. And they would pick that man to be the one who actually delivered them the message. If you're tracking with me, what does that sound like? It sounds like what Paul describes is that they're wanting itching ears. They're following, not that trying to be the best that you can be is a bad thing per se, but they were following the Greek culture, the Roman culture around them, and they were prioritizing form over substance. Don't hear what I'm not saying. It's good to have form and substance. Try our best to present our best and do what we can, so I'm not, not saying that. They idolized it. And so they would have the, the, the rabbi quickly give an overview of the lesson to this appointed hireling, if you will. The hireling would come in and put on a show. And friends, where people put on a show, there is no power there. Where, where, where self is exalted and where, where personality is, is pursued, the Holy Spirit is nowhere in a thousand miles of that. And so that's what's happening here. Jesus comes in confidently, but not pridefully. There is a confidence that is not prideful. He comes in humbly. He comes in under the authority of the Father who has sent him. And he stands up and he gives the word of God. Evidently, it's, it's been a while. Because they're sitting there struck to their core. Number one, we see their astonishment. Secondly, we see their acquaintance with him, or familiarity, to point back to the title this morning. Verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Now let's just hit pause there. The reference to Joseph gives hints here in our text and the gospel records, the our, uh, carpenter's son, that he's already passed on. Notice that we don't see Joseph on the scene at all after the birth of Christ. It is assumed that he has gone on to be with the Lord. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters, are they not all with us? The idea here is, is familiarity breeds contempt. I went to school with her. We, we, we know them. They're, they're from our neighborhood. They're one street over. So how is he going to stand up and tell me anything? That's the idea. That's what they're saying here. How is he going to get up there and tell me squat? How is he going to tell me anything that I don't know? I know enough to correct him. But here's the thing, they didn't. Jesus wasn't like any other man. Jesus was a sinless son of God. In fact, he was, in a sense, his righteousness reflected upon their corruption. It's what leads to these questions of derision, this antagonism that they showed to him. Where then did this man, notice the phrase, this man. When you're talking to someone, and, you, and they're in the presence, 
and you say to someone else, this man, friends, that's not respectful. That is a put down. They are intentionally dishonoring the Son of God. Where then did this man get all these things? So here's the idea. They're offended at him, which we'll get to next. And they're mad that Jesus didn't follow any of their training programs. They're mad that that he is coming in with spiritual authority from on high. And it annoys them that this son among them is coming in and embarrassing them. They're mad on a number of levels, spiritually, physically. They're putting him down. They don't want a local son to rise above them. Pride in their heart is, is absolutely disgusting. And friends, this morning, pride in my life, pride in your life, is absolutely disgusting before God. Pride that is underneath all other sins. Pride is the soil that sins grow out of. Pride is so gross, it's so wicked, and it's what all of our sin is fertilized in. Pride is the sin behind every other sin. But what pride does is it blinds, it hardens, it makes us clinical, it sterilizes. And pride, if not mortified and revealed to us by the Holy Spirit of God, cuts us off from the life of God and salvation. And that is exactly what we see here. We see an emotional progression of being amazed to being angered. And that leads to number three, their antagonism in verse 57. Notice this just summary statement. So then they were offended at him. There's so much here loaded in this text. Offense. When offense enters into the heart of a fallen human being, even those of us saved by grace, friends, we need to be careful. Offense like pride can cut off the life of spiritual vitality into our life. It can turn into bitterness. It can turn into all types of other sins that begins to captivate us. It begins to control us. And one of the difficult things in our fallen world is that God in his providence has chosen weak men to be his messengers. And God has chosen sheep to be his people. And you know what the problem is? Is that we mess up a lot. I do, and you do. One of the things we pray is saying, God, help me not to be an offense to the gospel. Help my life to be parallel to the truth that that has changed my life, that has saved my soul And that guides my my daily existence. And friends, if we're honest, we blow it all the time. Regularly, we have to come before our children and say, Daddy was wrong. Will you forgive me? We have to come to our spouse, our husband, our wife, and we have to say, hey, listen, that was not kind. And I'm sorry for um, making that decision and not talking to you about it, not including. You get the idea. Repentance is a sure sign of the Christian. But notice in the text, so they were offended at him. Now we can understand a context where fallen messengers of grace and where the salt and the light is not always so salty as we advance the gospel and the Great Commission. Our salt has lost its flavor and our light has begun to dim and our evangelism and our faithful presence. We can understand that. But friends, here they have no excuse. There's none of that with Christ. They see Christ, they hear Christ, and they don't want Christ. 
and their hearts are filled with unbelief. They are offended at him. This word is scandalizo in the Greek. It means to stumble or to trip up. And I want to remind us this morning that Christ is an offense to people. I'm going to say that again. I want to remind all of us this morning, if you are a Christian and you are actively trying to preach and teach the gospel, don't be surprised when what you're trying to do is not well received. Do not be surprised that Christ is an offense to people. Christ. And don't think in your mind, well, man, I messed it up. Let me go get my friend now. And maybe my friend can do a better job than I can. He's more gifted. I know, if we can, I can just get my friend to do what I'm trying to do, it'll work. And it doesn't work. Friends, you could go all the way to Christ himself, as we see here in the text. And some people are so offended at the righteousness, the truth, that exposes their sinfulness, that they will not even respond to Christ. And that's what Christ is here. He is a stumbling block. Now, that's hard to imagine and to think that Christ, the perfect Son of God, the beauty of Christ be upon us, that Christ could be a stumbling block. He's the Savior. How? He's not the stumbling block, but He is to pride. He is to self-righteousness. He is to Phariseeism. He is to legalism. There is only response, one response to Christ, and it's to bow the knee. It's to repent of sin. It's to turn and to trust. It's to become a disciple and take up your cross and to follow Him. Anything less is an offense. will be an offense in your life. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning and you're offended at Christ, let me just tell you, run to Him. Ask Him for mercy. Ask Him for grace. Because the more you grow in that, friends, you're cutting off all hope and life, eternal life, and salvation's blessings. Spurgeon says this in his sermon on this text. He says, they stumbled at that which should have been a stepping stone for them. Poor souls. How like to many in these days, Spurgeon speaking of the 19th century, who must have glitter and pretense, or they think nothing of the profoundest wisdom. Nextly, we see the answer of Christ as the focus shifts from them now to him, in verse 57, we see his response, the answer of Christ. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own country and in his own house. Now, G Jesus is taking a common proverb in Jewish writing, and he's bringing it to bear, their own cultural wisdom. And a, a proverb that we understand to be true, a modern translation, if you will, not really, but a parallel of, what Jesus is saying here, a prophet has no honor in his own country is to simply say, what we would say today, familiarity breeds contempt. And I want to remind all of us here this morning that we're not the message. And when you try to make yourself the message, we get in the way of the gospel. May we be those who are not trying to exalt and preach self, but those who exalt and preach Christ. And if people be turned away from Christ, let it not be because it was us. Here's another way that my granddad used to say it. If Christ be an offense, then so be it. But may we never be. Now here's the thing. We live in an age where we want to be liked. We're addicted to being liked. We want to be liked. We want that instant approval. We want the, the response on social media. We, we want the validation in person. We, we need to be affirmed. We, we understand that to, to a degree. But we in America are addicted to that. 
And we are addicted to being liked and received. And friends, I just want to remind us this morning that the gospel is our message. And you're going to find a problem when you try to be faithful to the gospel. You're not always going to be well received. Because the gospel is an offense to self-righteousness. It's an offense to the sinner. The very means of salvation is also the very means of hardening for the unbeliever. And so if the gospel is an offense, then so be it. And may God give us as his messengers grace to be faithful to the message preached, to the person of Christ. But at the same time, may we never seek to be an offense and and gloat in that. Well, there, go, excuse me, go burn in hell. May that never be found in that spirit or those words in our life. But that is not to say we don't preach about hell or preach about Christ or preach about the means of salvation. Boldly, confidently, lovingly. Remember Luke chapter 4. They marveled at how his words were gracious. Friends, may our words and preaching and teaching be gracious. May our speech in the language of Proverbs always be seasoned with salt. But I just want to tell you again as your pastor this morning, when you do all that, check, 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 check and the Spirit of God is upon you, and you're filled with the love of Christ, don't be surprised when there's a hardness of heart, when there's still an offense, when there's still no love or response to what you're trying to do in reaching that person for Christ. We understand, naturally in the human realm, as we see this answer of Christ, that familiarity breeds contempt. And so again, I'm going to come back, may the Lord help us to constantly... If familiarity breeds contempt, then may it be contempt at Christ and not contempt at the message that we are selling about ourselves. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we preach not ourselves. And the reason Paul said that was because he was being accused of that. They did not like his message. They couldn't touch his message. They couldn't touch the gospel. They couldn't touch the Son of God. So what did they do? They attacked him, his person. And that is the cruelest, friends, that is the meanest thing you can do, is to attack the messenger, the person. You understand this in your parenting. You you would say to your children, there's a difference in humor and laughing with someone, and there's a difference in being cruel, right? Don't make fun of something that somebody cannot change. And that's what's happening. You're, You're attacking the way God made them. You're attacking their person. And that's exactly what the false teachers did to Paul. They couldn't stand Christ. They couldn't stand his message. So what do they do? Ad hominem, attack the messenger. And friends, in our faithfulness to the gospel, look to Jesus and understand that now if they're attacking us and laughing at us because they see our silliness and our attempts to be relevant, our attempts to try to make the gospel relevant and cool and to the point of silliness, and we start getting what we think is persecution and being laughed at, friends, May we repent. May the Holy Spirit of God show us our foolishness. We're never going to be in step with the fallen world. To be in step with the fallen world is to lose the power, the distinction of the message preached. But if that response is that we are faithful to Christ and in love, we are constantly being messengers of Christ and our lives are being poured out like a drink offering for the Lord, and this is still the response, and friends, we leave the results with Him. Lastly, number five, we see the abstaining of Christ. 
And this is often the response that Christ gives to unbelief. We see in verse 58, Now he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Notice that word in verse 58. This is the summary word of the whole chapter. Unbelief. Spiritual apathy. Complete turning away from Christ. Hardening of heart. It's all summarized in unbelief. The reason this word strikes off the page is up until this point, Matthew has recorded for us record and account after account of unbelievable conversions, of the most unlikely people coming to faith in Christ through simple faith and responding to his message. They believed. They who had the least light when initially exposed to the light of the gospel said, Lord, I believe. Have mercy upon me. And here we see the the paradox, the paradigm here, that those who had the most light turn their back away. It makes no sense to us, but it's something we see in life and we see it in the scriptures. And here is this final word of our message this morning. Now he did not do, now notice there are many, it doesn't mean any. The indication here is that he did continue to do miracles and healings, but I'm sure as his pattern was at times they were more obscure They were in privacy. They were not on public display. We see the heart of our Savior at at work here. Why? Because of their unbelief. Nazareth from this point on is nothing. Don't hear about it. Don't read about it. Very little taking place in life and in history in many of these cities that completely turn their back on Christ. And friends, more pertinently this morning, if you're hearing the message of the gospel, let me just urge you and implore you, do not turn your back upon Christ. To the church this morning, I would just simply say this. Ask the Lord to help guide you into the inner man of your heart and show you the unbelief that may be there. Hear the word of the struggling disciple who said, Lord, I believe. You know the rest of it. But help my unbelief. That is to say, we're not talking about gospel issues. We're simply talking about the life of faith. There is unbelief in our method of operating. And we need to ask the Lord to show us what that is, where it is, where we've given up hope. This is too hard for the Lord to work here. This situation is too difficult. Unbelief is then entered in. I would remind all of us, Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it is impossible to please Him. So, That's the positive side. This is the negative side. May the Lord help us to see where is unbelief in my marriage, in my parenting, in my vocation, in my labors, in my hobbies, with evangelizing the lost. Where is my unbelief? Where is the situation that I feel like is too hard for the Lord? And how can I repent and then move forward in faith which honors and pleases God? Here in our text, Matthew chapter 13, they heard His hometown, those he lived life with for 30 years, they heard his words. They heard his works, and they denied him the worship that was due his name. So let me ask you a final question this morning. What is your unbelief? What is your unbelief hiding maybe behind? What is your rejection of the truth based upon? If you want to find a problem with me this morning, you'll have many things easily have a problem with that's not false humility that's the truth if you're lost and you're mad at someone who keeps praying for you and and telling you they love you and that they're praying for you and you're offended at them that's easy to do 
Friends, look to Christ. Turn to Christ. Ask Him to have mercy upon you. Ask Him to save you from your sin. And today will be the day of salvation for you. And then finally, church, what unbelief are you hiding behind that may be so sinister, it's so familiar, it's such a pet sin that you are blind to it. You can't even see it. So I want to give a final action item that I pray you will follow up on. Ask your spouse. You know, the question was asked of the old seminary professor who was retiring by the young seminary student. How do you, uh, how do you kind of protect your heart from pride in life? And the older seminary professor said, are you married? And the young man said, no. And he said, it's obvious. <laughs> Another way you could say that is, do you have children? No? Well, okay. Here's the idea. Those closest to us, the point is this, those closest to us are those who know us well. They, they know our strengths. They know our weaknesses. Go to those, your best friend, your spouse, your children, and ask them this question. What areas of unbelief do you see in my life that's not matching what I say I believe? As a Christian, as a scripture-saturated believer, do you see and observe an area in my life where my faith or my actions are not in consistency with the faith and the Savior that I love? And then, <laughs> when they answer that, have the humility to receive it and say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me to repent. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for Christ this journey of chronicling the life of Christ week after week as we have opportunity to look into the Word of God is mesmerizing. It constantly brings us back to what is most important, and that is Christ and His finished work and His resurrection power. Father, this morning we, we look to You. Holy Spirit of God, we pray You would reveal our sin to us. Show us the areas in our heart, in our life, where our actions are not matching what we say we believe. And the truth is, if we asked our lost friends, we all have them, if we asked them, they'll probably answer it best, for they know what a Christian should be. Lord, would you help us to be faithful to the gospel? If the gospel be an offense, then we can live with that. But may we never intentionally try to be. Would you give us mercy? Have mercy upon us, O oh Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.